with the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Brian German. Good morning, and thanks for tuning in to the Agnet News Hour. I am your host, Brian German, and today we'll be hitting some of the latest water news in an interview with Jeff Vandenhuvel from the California Milk Producers Council later on in the show. We've also got the latest California Chill Hour report coming up in a bit, but first, in today's top story, things are looking promising for the state's snowpack this season. Danielle Leal has the report. Yesterday, the Department of Water Resources conducted the second snow survey of the season at the Phillips Snow Station. DWR Snow Surveys and Water Supply Forecasting Unit Manager Sean DeGuzman with the totals. Our survey today recorded a snow depth of 85.5 inches and a snow water content of 33.5. That's 193% of average to date and 137% of the April 1 average at this location. Statewide snowpack based off of our automated snow sensor network is 205% of average. The results showed a boost in snowpack. Um, Our snowpack is off to an incredible start and it's exactly what California needs to really help uh, break from our ongoing drought. Um, We're actually currently outpacing 1982-1983 Uh, which is the wettest year on record, dating back about 40 years. Uh, Thanks in part to nine different atmospheric rivers that hit California, uh, bringing much-needed rain and snow. Uh, However, for every day that it doesn't rain or snow, we gradually return to drier conditions. Uh, Complementary to our manual snow measurements, um, our program has already started our data acquisition flights with our partners at Airborne Snow Observatories, and they are actually currently measuring snow from aircraft atop airplanes, uh, measuring snow using LIDAR so that we can actually accurately verify snowfall in places we've never been able to reach before. He also says totals like the ones from yesterday's survey present new challenges for water managers as they walk a fine line between water supply and flood control. Uh, We've seen an impressive increase in reservoir storage statewide. Uh, But there are still some of these larger reservoirs that are actually still below average, such as Lake Shasta. Uh, Reservoir operators are doing everything that they can to capture as much water as possible. And since December 1st, we've actually seen an increase of almost 9 million acre feet in reservoir storage statewide. Uh, California really just experienced the uh, wettest three-week period, uh, followed by uh, the driest three years in the state's recorded history. Um, And the precipitation California received from these recent storms really helped ease a lot of those drought concerns that we've had. Uh, But those impacts uh, really vary by location because California is really such a large state and you really need to uh, evaluate those impacts on a regional scale. And it's also based on local water supply conditions. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Leal. Thanks, Danielle. And as part of those three weeks of heavy rains, uh, many areas of the state experienced some pretty significant flooding uh, with a sizable amount of damage seen in the Monterey County area. We'll actually have Norm Groot with Monterey County Farm Bureau on the show next week to talk about how growers in the area have been impacted by the storms. So far, reports indicate that about 20,000 acres have been impacted. And while those losses are still being reported, the estimated total thus far is between 40 and $50 million. In other news, crop diversity helped a Southern California farmer offset some of the challenges they encountered after having a disastrous year for lemons. 
One of the family partners in Petty Ranch down in the Ventura area, Chris Sayer, said that they were fortunate that the avocado side of their operation was so successful. This was a great year to remind you of why you diversify, because uh, while avocados were great, lemons were terrible. So it really helped to even the, the score out a little bit. You know, we've got older lemon trees, uh, you know, which don't produce as much fruit or quite the same size and and grade uh, fruit as younger, more vigorous trees. And those are, you know, on the way to being replaced and transitioned over to avocados. So while as avocados were our best year in terms of production at record high prices, this was our lowest lemon year of production in a number of years at very low prices. So, you know, it, it evens out in the end. This is the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines, and we've got the latest livestock report coming up after the break. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In today's National Spotlight, I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana at the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show. During the course of the convention, participants gain insights on market trends and weather forecasts during the Cattle Facts Outlook Seminar. They learn about the industry's commitment to protecting environmental resources, supporting communities, and creating economically viable futures during the Sustainability Forum, and will get an update on the beef business climate in the United States and around the globe. Nearly 7,000 cattle producers, industry partners, and stakeholders are gathered for education, engagement, and entertainment. I caught up with California Cattlemen Association President Steve Arnold and checked in with him on how the show and his term as president are going. You are uh, president of the California Cattlemen's Association. So tell me, how has that been? How's it going for you? Well, it's only been 60 days, so it's been sort of harmless. But, you know, I came in under the cloud of COVID in 19 or in 2020 and went through the officer process. So it's been a little bit of a challenge, I think, is getting back, getting the organization back to where we used to be and the end of the teens. That's it's interesting to try to reorganize everything. So how is that buildup going? Because like you said, coming in during the COVID um, situation when everything was just a mess and going through the officer, you know, everything you needed to do to go up the ranks, how's it going? Well, I think it's, it's going okay. And luckily we have a really good staff, but I think the people got dependent on staff doing everything rather than the officers trying to uh, stay as involved as they could. And we've been meeting via telephone and you know, those things aren't always conducive to the best business. Yeah. It makes it hard to really build up relationships and stay connected, too. Absolutely does, and it, it's spread throughout the system. It's not just isolated in an area. It makes it a lot harder, yes. Being here like we are today in Louisiana and seeing everybody in person, once again at another cattle industry convention, are you seeing a lot of people that you know, and what type of things are you hearing people talking about while you're here? Uh, yeah, I'm seeing people I know, but... You know, I don't, I don't know a lot of people in the rest of the United States in the cattle business that are here. I know a lot of people, but they're not all here. 
Uh, I think this year's issue is traceability, probably the big issue. Last year it was price discovery. It was a lot more contentious when we were in Houston. Seems relatively easy today, to be honest with you. Isn't that interesting how it can change just from a year ago? I was thinking about that too, how the last year, what the big issue was and what everybody was talking about. And this year it seems like, you know, people are pretty content with it, I guess. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And I don't know if that's reflective on, you know, the Packers aren't making any money anymore. And, and the cattle numbers are so low west of the Mississippi to California that it's starting to look like the price is going to be good through the spring and for several years. So probably all follows. So what would you say would be some top issues for California cattle producers? Well, I think that's that's one of them for sure, the traceability factor. But, you know, we don't we have issues, but it's more about um, getting back into the process for us right now. That's my my focus, I think. And, you know, we have we have a really good staff. We have a financial person and two lobbyists that aren't really lobbyists. One of them runs the organization, Billy. Gatlin and then we have Kirk Wilbur but those those are the guys that know the inside business day and out that uh, things that I don't know but m my focus is more worldly theirs is governmental so I just like to be sure the organization is what the members want. Thank you again to Steve Arnold, president of the California Cattlemen's Association. New this year at the convention, Cattle Chats will feature 20-minute beef industry educational sessions with special spotlight sessions focusing on sustainability. Reporting from the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in New Orleans, I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now here's Randall Wiseman with today's Livestock Report. Well, in today's livestock news, dairy producers this year could be seeing a squeeze on margins as milk prices decline. Gary Crawford has the story. In dairy barns across the country, dairy operators year after year after year have managed to boost production and get more milk out of each cow, sometimes to the detriment of the prices they get for that milk. And so it is for milk and for most dairy products at the moment. Prices have started to decline and quicker than, than we had expected. Uh-oh, USDA Outlook Board Chairman Mark Jekinowski says it's a combination of continued increases in milk and dairy product production, plus... Weak demand and, and pretty strong international competition, and really a, kind of across the board for all of the main product categories, cheese, butter, nonfat, dry milk, dry whey, we reduced all of those uh, product price forecasts. Reduced them compared to what was being forecast a month ago. So now all those products are expected to sell for less this year than last. So for all of 2023 compared to 22, USDA is now projecting U.S. milk output will continue to grow, not by a lot, but by just under 2.5 billion pounds, less than 1%, but it is still growth. Meanwhile, the average all-milk price is going to go the opposite way, down, not up. The all-milk price, which of course is what drives the uh, Dairy Margin Protection Program, at least the price part of that program, the all-milk price we reduced a dollar ten cents per hundred weight. Reduced the forecast by that much compared to what was being projected a month ago. The new USDA all-milk price is now expected to average for this year twenty-one dollars and sixty cents per hundred weight, which would be almost four dollars a hundred weight, or about fifteen percent below 2022's average price. So with that reduction in milk price and really no corresponding reduction in the price of feed, you know, if anything, maybe some uh, upward pressure that potentially will squeeze those margins to the point where the uh, dairy program could start to pay out. 
The last payout was back in September. So if you signed up for USDA's dairy margin coverage, you may be very happy you did. USDA also has just announced some additional help for producers, a second round of payments in the Pandemic Market Volatility Assistance Program, and a new Organic Dairy Marketing Assistance Program, both designed mainly to help small and mid-sized producers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. And U.S. farm cash receipts from animals and animal products total $195.8 billion in 2021. That was led by receipts for cattle and calves at $72.9 billion, or 37%. USDA's Economic Research Service reports that poultry and egg products made up the next largest share of 2021 cash receipts at $46.1 billion, or 24%. That was followed by dairy at $41.8 billion, or 21%. Hogs were at 28 billion or 14 percent. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and with today's agricultural law and tax report, here's Roger McGowan. Boundary issues often arise in rural settings. What controls when a survey doesn't match an existing fence line? How is the actual legal property boundary determined? It's an issue that arises more than you might think. Landowners generally consider existing fences to be the boundary between adjacent properties, but the law may view things differently. The actual boundary is an imaginary line that can be found by examining the deeds to the adjacent properties. An existing fence line is merely evidence of where the boundary line between the properties is located. It's also immaterial whether the fence is a permanent fence or not. However, what happens when the fence line has become part of the property description over time is the land changed hands. In that situation, the fence line may be considered to be the legal property boundary. That's even the case if a parcel is described by mapping out the survey lines and the existing fence is not on the surveyed boundary. Instead, the adjacent owners may have treated that old fence as the boundary. This actually occurs frequently in rural settings, and when it does, the old fence can be substituted for the actual legal boundary under the doctrine of practical location. Once that fence has been used as the boundary for a set period of time defined by state law, it can become the legal boundary by filing an action to quiet title. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Testing and fieldwork continues for an autonomous tractor and tillage system introduced last year at a prestigious Consumers Electronic Show. USDA's Rod Bain talks with Ryan Jordan of John Deere in this next report. It was just over a year ago that agriculture and autonomous innovation were on display at the annual Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Ryan Jardon of John Deere recalls. We unveiled what we've called our autonomous tillage solution, and that is a tractor pulling a chisel plow. We started there due to fall harvest being kind of the first area. The customers said, hey, that's where we really need the capacity freed up. Combines are running. They want to do a nutrient application, maybe put on anhydrous, things like that. The tillage job in the fall is also probably the lowest 
risk time of year as well. He adds the education received through trials and operation of the new autonomous tractor system is expected to carry over to other field operations, such as spring tillage. Throughout 2023, we'll be running with other machine forms too, such as vertical tillage tools. We're working to expand different crop types that we're working in, different tillage tools that we're pulling, different times of year, different geographies, things like that. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rod. And all sorts of autonomous vehicles and innovative products will be showcased at the 2023 World Ag Expo. An innovative health and wellness bonus at Activate 23. AgSafe's annual health and safety conference, Activate 23, is coming up on February 7th through the 9th. Teresa Keen, president and CEO of the organization, says there's an out-of-the-box health and wellness opportunity offered through one of the conference courses. What we're really excited about is that we have partnered with Western Center for Agricultural Health and Safety through UC Davis, and they will be there at conference, and they're offering this really great workshop. It is the Corsi Rosenthal Train the Trainer workshop, and this Corsi Rosenthal box is essentially it's a homemade air cleaning system that can reduce exposure to airborne particulates. So think of it as a really awesome air filter. And um, we'll be making these on site at the AgSafe conference on February 9th. Folks can sign up online. We'll send you a link to that. And for free, you can go and learn how to make these homemade air filtration systems that you can take back to your your operations, take them back to your homes if you need to. It was a great, innovative, outside-of-the-box kind of solutions as you're thinking about how to help clean your air and, um, you know, get rid of some of those like the, the flu virus and also thinking about COVID as well. AgSafe will also be handing out COVID masks and tests at their booth during the event. If interested in attending, registration can be found by visiting agsafe.org. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Leal. Thanks, Danielle. And in related news, a joint event featuring discussions about rangelands and wildfires is coming up in a few weeks in Stockton. Hosted by the California Rangeland Conservation Coalition, UC Ag and Natural Resources, and the Range Management Advisory Committee, the Rangeland and Fire event is scheduled for February 24th at the Stockton Ag Center. The morning portion of the conference will have information for navigating the proposal process for wildfire fuels treatment using targeted grazing. After lunch, the summit will continue with presentations on new grazing and fire research, obstacles to prescribed burning, and targeted grazing and associated issues. There will also be a discussion on how labor issues are impacting small ruminant grazing, along with a rancher panel going over how grazing livestock has been used to reduce fire risks. More information on the conference is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. This is the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. And now for more of the day's featured segments. In this week's California Chill Hour report brought to you by Dormex. Wake up your buds with Dormex. 
Research director at the Mari Agricultural Research Institute, Masood Kesri has been working on a project related to bloom synchronization in pistachio orchards and how Dormex might be able to address bloom issues related to chill accumulation. This issue happens in low chill years and locations because the Peters has more chill requirement than Kerman. So to prevent this issue, we carried out a large-scale replicator research trial in different locations in Tulare County to evaluate the efficacy of this chemical compared to oil and also to non-treated trees. The findings thus far in the first year of the multi-year research trial are showing some promise. Actually, we got significant results with application of rest-breaking agents. Like oil, I can say the effect of Dormex was significant on yield increase when you compare it with uh, untreated control trees. And in one, it is interesting, in one location, which is a low chill location, we had the highest yield by spraying Dormex compared to all spray trees and non-treated control trees. So I can say the lower chill accumulation, the higher yield difference you can see with winter spray of Dormex. As part of the project, measurements were taken to try and evaluate what timing might be most effective. In the first year, we sprayed Dormex at different chill portions. In a good chill location, actually, we got uh, the highest yield at CP chill portion 65. And in low chill location, where it did not reach actually to CP 65, it reached to 60. The highest yield was uh, with Dormex spray at CP 60, which was almost around the labor spray timing instruction. We also found out Dormex spray very early, like at uh, CP55, reduced the yield and increased the blank percentage, but at the right timing, it increased the yield significantly. So timing is very critical, and I suggest the growers track the tree portion from their local weather stations and the nearest semi stations to spray Dormex at the right time. And I also encourage them to follow the label instructions. And information from the UC Davis Chill Calculator shows that as of February 1st, the Durham Simmons Station has logged 63 portions under the dynamic model with 1,081 hours below 45 degrees. The station in Manteca has registered 60.2 portions with 988 hours. There's been 1,130 hours in Merced with 62 cumulative portions. In five points, there's been 1,068 chill hours, equating to 58.5 portions. Finally, the Sima station in Shafter has registered 57.6 portions with 1,054 hours. And this has been the California Chill Hour Report brought to you by Dormex. Tune in again next week for another episode. And in other weather-related news, after last year's weather issues, grape growers will be paying special attention to temperature forecasts this spring. Extension Specialist with the Department of Viticulture and Enology at UC Davis, Matthew Fidilibus, said last year growers reported several problems related to a period of colder day and nighttime temperatures that had a negative impact in vineyards. And under those conditions, it affects pollination. And so we do see fruit set issues, you know, not enough fruit set. And the berries that do set sometimes develop abnormally under those conditions. And so a lot of people in the valley saw that. If they were growing a variety that bloomed earlier or later than that cool spell, then a lot of them didn't see any problems with fruit set uh, or berry development. But it's just those ones that were uh, either blooming or just following bloom where we have that cool spell in the beginning of May last year that caused a lot of problems. This is the Agnet News Hour, and I'm your host, Brian German. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. In today's interview portion, we've got the opportunity to hear from Jeff Van Heuvel. He's the Director of Regulatory and Economic Affairs for the California Milk Producers Council and also serves on the Board of Directors for the Water Blueprint of the San Joaquin Valley. And now, Jeff, uh, you're well-versed in the water regulations and uh, water conditions in the state, and that's that's usually been the area of focus when we've uh, talked in the past here. And so, again, today, let's start out with um, some information you highlighted in a uh, recent newsletter uh, related to the Delta pumping rules and um, how that's impacted the amount of pumping that's been taking place uh, after all that rain that we got here in California. Yeah, it's a uh, it's complicated, but the uh, you know kind of in a nutshell, there is a requirement for uh, as soon as flows hit a certain high level in the delta that are flowing through the delta, there's a requirement in the uh, biological opinions and the operating plans for the delta to require a two week flush of the delta, and so there's restricted pumping, uh, and it's you know it's it's complicated language, but Bottom line is that the perception is there, that this will protect uh, some endangered fish. Now, there's a question as to whether two weeks is really necessary, whether it really does protect fish, but it's in the rule. And they enforce the rule because they really don't have any choice, the operators. And so, you know, we had these atmospheric rivers come into California and dumped enormous amounts of, of rain and precipitation snow right you know through the watersheds of the delta and massive flows became came through the delta and because of this restriction the pumps were uh, the federal the federal pumps were pumping pretty close to capacity that's uh, about 4400 cubic feet per second and uh, just for reference uh, one cubic feet per second operating for 24 hours will move two acre feet of water so that's a little rule of thumb. So if you've got 4,000 cubic feet per second and you run it for 24 hours, that's 8,000 acre feet of water. So the federal pumps were running um, and there's a reason for that. There was water coming in from the San uh, Joaquin Riverside, uh, but the Sacramento Riverside uh, inflows into the Delta were massive and the state pumps were operating down at about 1,900 cubic feet per second of pumping when their capacity is closer to 10,000 cubic feet per second. And so for these 14 days, they were, they were throttled back. They, they got, you know, they, they, they got a little bit higher than 1900 during the uh, some days of that two week period. But that's where you had all of the complaining because uh, it peaked at over 150,000 cubic feet per second coming through the Delta during this two weeks. So, <laughs> you know, um, it was very frustrating to people that, you know, you had the capacity to pump another eight or 9,000 cubic feet per second, and you didn't do it because of this rule when you've got 150,000 cubic feet per second coming through the area. So the two-week period was up on the 17th of January, and the fishery officials could have extended it. Um, they continued to want to watch it. 
but they did uh, ramp up the pumping. And so um, because I had, uh, you know, there'd been a lot of attention focused on the reduced pumping, we wanted to make sure that folks knew that, you know, there was an increase in the pumping, a substantial increase in the pumping after the 17th of January. And uh, so that's good. The underlying problem remains, Brian, and then the other uh, the underlying problem is that there is a fish impact from the location and the nature of those pumps. And until we actually separate the pumping from the fish, uh, we're going to continue to have problems. And that conversation, uh, the relationship between uh, pumping and, and fish protections, uh, that's where there's been some effort there on behalf of the water blueprint for the San Joaquin Valley, right? Uh, what is the group ultimately working towards there? Uh, the Blueprint is a group that is organized really in the last four years, recognizing that we've got, now that we're regulating groundwater, we're going to dial back groundwater pumping, particularly in the San Joaquin Valley, to a sustainable level. And understanding the, the impact of doing that, uh, it's, it's, it's going to mean that we have to pump really a couple million acre feet less water out of the ground if we don't do anything else that's going to have a a major, major impact on the San Joaquin Valley. And so the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint is is really representative of both the water community, the ag community, uh, and the local communities um, are all parts of the, you know, formed uh, the San Joaquin Valley Water Blueprint and developed what we think are um, a couple of crucial additional pieces to what the governor has put together in his water resiliency portfolio and his water supply strategy. This governor, Governor Newsom, has done some uh, important things on identifying the need to work on water and to secure our water future uh, and that we've got some fundamental things that we need to do and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But we see a couple of additional pieces that would be very supportive of what the governor uh, has put out there and are really critical. And one is to change the way we take water out of the Delta. Right now, the water comes and there there are some fish screens, um, but uh, they actually do capture, (laughs) they capture fish off of these screens. Uh, In fact, every day uh, for the last, you know, 60 or 70 years, they've been trucking the fish they catch at the the screens and they they load them into water trucks and and, uh, drive them up to the Delta and dump them back in. And you can imagine, where the predator fish are hanging out every day as the trucks come by to dump the fish that were caught at the screens. It's, it's, a, it's a bad design. It represents decades old technology. And uh, what has been worked on for a, a number of years is, is really a concept that we're very familiar with in agriculture, which is you know the drain, we, we drain our fields. But there's an application of that idea, which is to put pipes under the bottom of the water column and, and essentially a French drain and the water, uh, then you have a fairly large area with you know, a whole manifold system of perforated pipes underneath the bottom of the uh, bottom of the water column. And you take the water, and if you uh, the, the scientific work that has been done here has determined that if if the if the flow is less than an inch a minute in terms of going into those pipes, uh, the fish don't lose any buoyancy. Even the smallest fish in the fish larvae don't even notice that the water is is leaving and so uh, this is this technology has been applied in rivers and uh and we believe that would work in the delta so we've got a pilot project uh that we're that we're ready to go with we're looking for funding uh, for that and the whole idea there would be to 
essentially change the way we take the water in from the delta and uh, separate essentially the uh, the export water from the fish in a way that the fish wouldn't even know that the water is leaving uh, because it would go down through the bottom and uh, and not impact the fish. They'd swim around and and do their thing uh, above it, and uh, and, the, and we could extract the water essentially fish free. And, uh, and we think that this would be a real game changer. And, and obviously we've just got a real world example uh, in the last few weeks of, of the kind of impacts that we have to water supply because of the way the pumps impact the fish. And we're gonna take a pause here and uh, pick up this conversation in just a couple of minutes. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West Radio Network. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. And we're continuing our conversation today with Jeff Vandenhuvel with the California Milk Producers Council and who also serves on the board of directors for the Water Blueprint for the San Joaquin Valley. And uh, now, Jeff, the Water Blueprint folks uh, recently sent a letter to um, Governor Newsom, the Department of uh, Natural Resources and Department of Water Resources, uh, with some suggestions to um, help further the state's water resiliency portfolio and, and water supply strategy. And um, a component of that was um, something called the Southern San Joaquin Water Resiliency Project. And so uh, what is that all about? The uh, Southern San Joaquin Water Resiliency Project is the name that we're giving to kind of a, a suite of uh, things. If you look at the, the most water short part of the San Joaquin Valley, it really is the lower San Joaquin uh, Valley, you know, kind of Kern and Tulare counties, kind of the Southern Valley there. And uh, there's not really a, a way to tap into the California aqueduct from there. It's a little north of the of, of Kern, uh, where uh, those districts, which are uh, connected to the state water project. So it's a little bit north of there. And the idea is, is to build a bi-directional uh, additional conveyance. It only makes sense to build this conveyance if we'll have water to put in it, and we'll only have water to put in it if we can solve the fishery impacts in the delta. But if we can solve the fishery impacts in the delta, then there would there will be, um, in particularly in these wet years, uh, extra water that we could then move into. And if you think about a, a conveyance structure that would start, you know, somewhere around uh Kettleman city generally in that area the california aqueduct then come east uh around the bottom of tulare lake and then up through i'll say around highway 43 and uh, there's a couple of wildlife refuges the Kern wildlife refuge the pixley wildlife refuge that desperately could use some additional water there's disadvantaged communities that are really impacted by uh, groundwater depletion that that could be uh, served and there's a whole lot of opportunity for recharge. So the whole idea then is to essentially bring the surplus water in uh, for environmental community and recharge purposes. And then with it bi-directional, what that means is you can move water both ways in the conveyance. You build it in such a way that you can move it both ways. Uh, we think that uh, this is a great location for uh, water banks, significant water banking. And um, we can think of lots of places in the state as we go into droughts that could potentially last, you know, three to five years, 
there'll be lots of need uh, to have uh, banked water that can be available in those dry years. So this would be a very good water banking area as well. So that that's kind of the blueprint plan, you know, separate the fish from the pumping and the delta and then create another opportunity for significant water banking in the South San Joaquin Valley. And um, and you put that together with uh, all the other good things that are in the governor's plan. And we think we really got uh, an opportunity here to uh, secure water, the water future of California for decades to come. And as a recap to today's top story, the latest snowpack information recorded by the Department of Water Resources earlier this week shows the state's in a much better situation than the last few years. According to DWR's electronic readings from 130 snow sensors throughout the state, the California snowpack is currently at 205% of average for the state, with a snow water equivalent of 33.7 inches. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgNetWest online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgNetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the AgNet NewsHour from AgNetWest. AgNetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.